This morning I'd like to speak on the subject, Divine Treasure in Earthenware. It never ceases to amaze me that uh, something like clay, the clay earth, the clay dirt, and so on, can be mixed with water, put on the potter's wheel, uh, fashioned into a particular vessel or implement, and then fired for a certain amount of time to harden it, and then either it can be just brought out uh, as a very simple uh, thing, or it can be put uh, glaze and paint and so on to be something very, very beautiful. And that's the exact thing Paul was using with respect to the idea of the divine treasure, meaning the person of our Savior in earthenware, you know, those of us who are in the flesh. Beginning in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, would you stand with me again as we have the reading of the scripture? Paul said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Father in heaven, thank you for this reading. And Lord, as we seek to have understanding by the aid of your Holy Spirit, who will illumine our minds and our hearts, to not only give us understanding, Lord, but also to convince us that we need to make proper application of these things that are shown theologically in order that we might outlive uh, within us these principles in order that people can see in us the Lord Jesus and not just ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we understand that anything good that happens to us or through us is all based on the power that's allowed to be shown in us by your Spirit. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. True power does not consist of missiles and tanks any more than it consists of muscles in tank tops. You're supposed to laugh. No matter how powerful the bombs or how pumped up the biceps, true power is not found there. True power exists in paradox the most significant of which occurred 2,000 years ago when God in the flesh died. When omnipotence surrendered to impotence, Jesus, who had the power 
to call angels down from heaven to destroy his enemies didn't. Instead, he endured the shame of the cross. The Bible says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And as if the uh, rejection from man wasn't painful enough, Jesus also faced the silence of his own heavenly Father during those dark hours before he actually succumbed in death. The Gospel according to Mark, and we'll look at uh, chapter 15, verse number 34. The Bible says, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In spite of what uh, some theologians have tried to do to interpret this, the very fact that Jesus, the Bible says, took upon himself your sin and mine. He became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But when he was hanging between heaven and earth, suspended on that cross, he, when he took upon himself your sin and mine, certainly he didn't have any himself, but he took upon your sin and mine. When that happened, our heavenly Father who was completely holy and righteous, could not even look favorably at that moment upon his son because of that. Now I'll tell you, I've heard different stories and even different statements from pulpits with regarding uh, the suffering that Jesus endured. And they'll make comments uh, typically like, nobody ha has suffered, and they simply mean physically more than Jesus did. Okay but I think you have to look at the whole picture. He did, indeed, suffer physically. He did. An awful death. But he also suffered emotionally from the standpoint of the rejection of those for whom he was dying. And thirdly, and most importantly, he suffered spiritually because as our intercessor on the cross, taking his sin and your sin upon himself, and the condemnation that went with it, his own heavenly father turned away. That was by far the most agonizing aspect of his suffering. And so you have to look at all three elements. And with that said, with all three elements considered, did Jesus suffer more than anyone else ever did or ever could? Absolutely. No question. The prophet Isaiah confirmed the same thing. In Isaiah chapter 53, a well-known and understood passage of Scripture, the Bible says in verse number 10, Yet it pleased 
the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. When you look at the very first part of that verse, you scratch your head uh, if you don't have real understanding. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. By pleasing, it doesn't necessarily mean that God was getting a big kick out of it. He was not. But it pleased the Lord. He made a choice by sending his son to this earth. And then finally, when he went to the cross, it pleased or satisfied the Lord to bruise his only son because that was the only means whereby sinful men could be saved. And his heart of love, though it most definitely was with his son, it extended into a lost race. Those who were sinful and, and understood that they only had that means whereby they could come to life. A loving father turned his back on his only son. Is it any wonder the cross is a stumbling block to so many people? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll look at verse 18. The Bible says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I know as I uh, share the gospel with people uh, periodically, and so on, and, and, and what I'm finding is so many people now, uh, they have not been exposed to any aspect of the gospel. And as such, when I talk to them about it, they'll consider this message, the message of the cross, uh, definitely to be, oh, come on, you really think that's where, where, it, where it is? So they, they not only understand, and therefore they put it down. But for those of us who have been redeemed, we know. We've experienced the love of God in that way, understanding that the Bible, when the Bible talks about the just dying for the unjust, we know that because we know that's what the Lord did for us. And we claim that. Well, they don't comprehend that. But just like I said kind of in an introduction, is look at it this way, is that even though when you talk to people about the things of God and you share the gospel and so on, and you're trying to see them get to the point where they'll be under Holy Spirit conviction and hopefully to eventually come to Christ and salvation. Maybe they initially reject, but that's here. But understanding if you preach the gospel, you preach the word, what's invariably happening is the Holy Spirit is accompanying that word, making the appeal to the heart. And so stay with it. The power of God, that's the topic Paul discussed in our message today in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12. And so power to minister effectively and impact others comes from God. But his power is not displayed as humans would display it. 
There are no parades of military might, no bold headlines in the local newspaper, no press conferences, no flexed muscles or clenched fists, and no angry threats. So with that said, how does God display his power? Paul tells us in the very first part of our text in verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Ah, earthen vessels, simple clay pots, fragile and flawed, you and me. What a paradox. Divine power in simple pots. Why would God place his priceless treasure in such unpretentious pottery? And it's answered again in verse 7. So that there is an obvious understanding for believers that the power is of God and not of us. Like Mary's expensive perfume, the aroma of Christ inside our hearts cannot be experienced by others until it's poured out. John chapter 12 and verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And often God's way of pouring out that fragrance is to break the earthen vessel that holds it. Notice verses 8 and 9 of our text this morning. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. The word translated hard-pressed, single word, and it carries with it the idea of pressure. They were under pressure, like a cluster of grapes squeezed by a wine press. The word translated perplexed, uh, a meaning without a way, it suggests the idea of being lost and disoriented. One writer put it this way, we are severely pressed at every point, but not hemmed in. Persecuted by men, but never abandoned by God. At our wit's end, but never at our hope's end. Knocked down, but not knocked out. But that's not what we typically want in our lives, is it? We want to be glazed and polished, displayed on some safe shelf. But God wants us to be fragrant, a fragrant aroma of Christ. 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God 
the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And that simply means that uh, we have to be taken off the shelf, poured out, and yes, even broken. The spiritual battle is real. Okay? But we don't want real battles. We want life to be like Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean. We want to float through the water on these little boats, watching from a distance the cannon fire and the splashing water. But we don't want real cannonballs. We just want a safe thrill. But real life isn't Disneyland. It's a war zone with real battles, real bullets, and real blood being shed. Sickness, disease, heartache, disappointment, crippling accidents, crushing experiences, tears, and even death touch each one of us. Bottom line, life is no real joyride. But does God put us through all this just to watch us squirm? To make us miserable? Or to prove that he's in charge? No. Not at all. Instead, this all points back to the cross. We come to another paradox. Experiencing the life of Jesus requires an acceptance of death. Notice again our text in verse number 10. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Here's the point. There is no abundant life without first an abasing death. And this reality should be displayed in our lives not only clearly, but continually. Verse 11. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So what exactly, in this context, did Paul mean by death? It includes acceptance of those four painful experiences mentioned in verses 8 and 9 that we've read. When we accept those struggles as part of the process of releasing our fragrance, we're not destroyed. Rather, his power is perfected in our weakness. That's the point. For when we die to self, when we mortify the deeds of the flesh, that means to put them to death, he lives. When we lose, he wins. When we're weak, he is strong. When we're dependent, he is powerful. And that's the beauty of the paradox. That is the divine power in earthenware. The Bible even says here in our text, it mentions the idea of being delivered over to death. 
Boy, that doesn't sound like Disneyland, does it? But there is divine wisdom that's found here. We are constantly being delivered to the point of death so that God's message will be poured out. Okay? Then people who watch us, thats this is a key point, then people who watch us will realize there isn't anything significant about the vessel. It's what's inside that counts. When other people see this death in us, according to verse 12, it changes them. So then death is working in us, but life in you. When others see God's power perfected in our weakness, it dawns on them that maybe God could use them too. You want to make an impact where you work? You want to reach the other students in your school? You want to have an ample touch in your neighborhood? Then merely live out the dying message of the Lord Jesus. Let it out. Don't hide the cracks which exist in the clay. Let your humanity show. You know why? Yeah, we're flawed. And sometimes our human nature and flaws that accompany that are going to be shown. Okay, just is going to happen. But you know what? That's going to be uh, something that's a little more believable to people. You know why? Because there are already too many heretical groups that believe in this idea that you can be saved and made sinlessly perfect. That's a misnomer. It isn't true. Human nature doesn't support that, nor does the Word of God. What's the point? The point is, is that in spite of the flaws, people will look and say, you know what? Maybe I can do this too. Maybe there's hope for me. You'll be amazed how often God honors a weak, broken piece of pottery and how seldom he uses the fine china. At least three paradoxes, if you will, splinter off from the one concerning the cross. First, when God displays his power, it flows through weakness. Secondly, when we model the death of Jesus, and that simply means that we daily put to death the things of the flesh, when that happens, others see his life. And third, when the cross is lifted high, even the arrogant are brought low. Did you ever notice that when during Jesus' public ministry is that uh, he had a, a much harder time dealing with the religious leaders of his day, namely the Pharisees and others, but yet when he approached and sought to minister to those who were renowned sinners, like the tax collectors, like the harlots and so on, he had a much more receptive audience. Why was that? 
because there didn't have to be a whole lot of convincing on his part or that even of the Holy Spirit that they were sinners. Try to convince a Pharisee that they were sinners? No, they were of the sinless perfection crowd, and they never heard. They never heard. So let's conclude with the very words of Jesus as found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. His words meet us at a juncture. So the idea is that we have to find our own road to Calvary. Or, instead of taking that road, will it be the off-ramp in Anaheim, California, to Disneyland? The choice is yours. Scripture is full of paradoxes. And a paradox is nothing more than something that appears to be the exact opposite of the statement. Strength in weakness, much from little, life in death. And today we've seen how God and his power is displayed in the broken clay pots of our lives. And the one thing I want to speak to as well, we should never, ever reach the point of spiritual arrogance where we think we're something. If we're anything, it's because of the power of God in us. Okay? The Bible is replete with examples of those who found victory in the midst of human trials and weakness only to display the power of Almighty God. One of my favorites goes back to the book of Genesis, Joseph the Patriarch. And you look at, the, especially the early part of his life, and so on, and you say, where's the worth in all of this? It took patience, and it obviously took faith on his part to know that God was going to take care of him, and take care of him he did. And the interesting thing, these were very humbling experiences for Joseph, so much to the point where he was in a point of physical destitution. But when the Bible talks about he who is exalted will be abased, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Joseph is a clear example of exactly that. And what about Ruth the Moabitess? She was uh, raised in a, an ungodly pagan environment. She happened to marry one of the sons of Elimelech and Naomi. And when she uh, and her sister-in-law, who's also a Moabitess, when their uh, husbands passed away, Naomi basically encouraged both of them, Orpah and Ruth, to go back to Moab, go back with your people, and go back to serve your gods, of which Orpah did that. But Ruth found something 
in the lives of her in-laws, obviously her husband and brother-in-law, that really made a difference in her life. And so when it came down to a choice of going back to be with her own native people and uh, native practices and native religion and so on, she rejected it and decided to stay with Naomi and to be sure to serve the living God. And that's what she did. And praise the Lord, Ruth, a Gentile woman, is in the very lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What about the early patriarch Job? You look at his life through the course of those first several chapters of the book of Job, and you say, man, how can anybody endure that? From a physical standpoint, he couldn't. But he understood internally that his Redeemer lived and knew that at the end, the Redeemer would stand. And so in spite of all of the calamity that happened in his life, the death of his ten children, the loss of his property and livestock and all of that, uh, even his own wife decided to not accept his credibility, nor did three, or I should say four, of his supposed friends. And it would stand that he would be there all alone. Point to be made, that he was not there all alone. He continued to have faith in his Redeemer. Now, he wavered just a bit, and uh, of course, and anybody probably would. But in the end, he emerged victorious, and God restored everything and more as a result of his faithfulness. And then what about Daniel, the enslaved Hebrew in Babylon? This is one of those cases where a, a Gentile king, under his edict, you know, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which could not be undone, through deception, King Darius the Mede issued a, a mandate that no, the people of Israel could not pray toward Jerusalem. Daniel made a decision that, you know, just like we have to at times, in fact, more now than ever before, because even our government is trafficking in things that are against the laws of God. And we reached the point, as did Daniel, to where the laws of God are much more important than the laws of men. Okay? The mandate from the king, don't pray toward Jerusalem. Guess what he did? He prayed toward Jerusalem because the law of God and his obedience to God far outweighed his response to King Darius. The principle of power in earthenware sounds noble and attractive on paper. But in real life, that's what we're about here, we often want to glue the chinks in our stoneware before they turn into leaky cracks. So the question is, how's your pot holding up? Is it still intact, used only for decoration? Or is it chipped and scarred from years of faithful service to the Lord? We're probably not going to be very beautiful as far as vessels go. But you know what? That's okay. God will use a, a vessel that's a little ugly. He won't use one 
that's unclean. Even if it's beautiful. This morning, of course, as born-again believers, we have to kind of go back to at least what transpired when we were under conviction of the Holy Spirit with regard to our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There has never been anyone saved who, in their pride and arrogance, continued in that mode and somehow or another found their way to the grace of God. That defies that definition. What had to happen? It happened in my case, in uh, all of yours, I'm sure, who have responded to the gospel. You had to come to the end of yourself. You had to realize, as the Holy Spirit uh, brought conviction, that uh, you were a guilty sinner. You had defied the laws of God. And you therefore had to come to God with that realization and with the idea that you needed to turn from that sinful way of life and turn to the only means whereby you could find life, and that is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And on that basis of genuine repentance, you simultaneously manifested faith in Jesus and his work on the cross to bring salvation to your life. Well, we should never forget that. And that is, of course, this morning, the message to anyone who has never personally, up until this time, ever responded to the gospel through repentance and faith. The point to be made, as we kind of put it all together, is that in order for someone to come to Christ, they have to humble themselves. They have to realize that they're sinners by nature. And then once someone does genuinely repent toward God and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then in the course of their life after salvation, it is a daily routine, if you want to put it like that, to deny self in order that the power may be of God and not of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the word will have a dynamic effect on the hearts and the lives of people. Especially, Lord, do we pray that your Holy Spirit is moving in the hearts of those who need Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and pray that this service will not end until there is the manifestation of genuine repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who have been saved, may this be a day of renewal if they've not been putting to death the deeds of the flesh daily and have allowed their own ways to kind of take charge. May this be the day of renewal for them wherein they can get back to putting uh, Jesus on the throne of their lives while at the same time taking themselves off of it. And may we understand, your God, and no matter what we seek to do to honor you is that we're earthen vessels, but the quality of, of us as a vessel is that which is within, and that is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand together, please, as we prepare for an invitation song.
God has been presented, the truths of the word have made an appeal to the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls at their area of need. And so a time of response would most definitely be in order. Because obviously, it would not be a good thing if the lost remain lost and don't respond to the gospel and leave this building in the same condition in which they entered. Or, if an individual is saved by grace, we praise the Lord for that, but yet there's still uh, some areas in the life in which they are not totally committed to the Lord, not in complete self-denial, in order for the power of God to rest with them instead of their own. And so if you have a particular need uh, with respect to how God's Spirit is moving in your life and heart, we urge you to come as we sing.